I'm very happy to be with you all here tonight, and some of you look like you're warm. <laughs> but um, we're very glad that uh, we could gather together as the Sabbath approaches and open His Word together and to seek His will for our lives and to listen to the Spirit speak to our hearts. Uh, could we begin, uh, if you're able, I don't know what the geometry might be around your chair, but if you're able, could we kneel together as we begin uh, with prayer again tonight. Our wonderful Father in heaven, Lord, we are very thankful for this opportunity to come together in this place at the threshold of these sacred hours and to talk about the rest that we find in Jesus. And Lord, we believe that each day eternal battles are raging around us and we believe that you've called us together to speak to us through your holy word lord as we uh, now direct our attention to that blessed book we pray that you will give us ears to hear we ask lord that we can be different in a positive way as a result of this meeting this evening i pray lord that you'll be with the one who is to speak forgive his sins and that ultimately you will be the one we see and hear Help us to experience that rest that you promised for us. We thank you and we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm happy to be able to uh, do something a, a little unique for me. And that's, uh, I've been given a passage of scripture and I have been blessed as I have explored it to unfold and to share it with you I'm hoping and praying that it'll touch your heart as it has mine and the passage is dealing with the rest of God that you find in the book of Hebrews and principally I've been assigned Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 but you know you really need to back up a little bit to get the context for this if you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, of course the chapters and verses were, were not in the original. Here, we believe Paul is the writer. He's talking about this wonderful rest that God is offering each of us. Now keep in mind, and it's very appropriate that on the Sabbath we're talking about this, or as the Sabbath's about to begin, this, uh, this rest. When God made Adam, how many days did Adam live before he had a Sabbath? He started his life pretty much, I don't think he had a full 24 hours. And next thing he knew, he had that time with God. God established a pattern for him in his very creation that life was about resting in the Lord. Something else that none of us have really experienced, Adam was born perfectly secure in a home made by God that was ideal. Uh, his family did not have any of that, um, well, how do they say, dysfunctional baggage that we're all born into. He had the perfect family when he entered the world. But then because of unbelief and because of sin, Adam was evicted from his beautiful paradise home and Eve. And from that day to 2010, July, man has been wandering. We have been missing that rest of a real home. You know, we sing that song, this world is not my home. And it's really not. Matter of fact, you can read in uh, Hebrews a little later where it, it admits, and you find this in Hebrews 11, verse 13, all these died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Man is sort of restless. We're wandering, looking for a home. For those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. And so we're all really trying to get home to find that rest. And so this is the context of what Paul is talking about when he begins. And I'm going to start with uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proved me. Keep in mind, he's writing to Hebrews. So he says, your fathers are talking about the Israel nation. And saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts. And they've not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Boy, what terrifying words to hear God say to us. What he said to the Israelites back then. Because of your unbelief, you never will get to the promised land. That's a scary thought, and it should be. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. How does God view unbelief? Evil. What happened? How did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? It was unbelief. Oh, we'll say, well, they sinned, but what was the principal sin? God said one thing, the devil said another, they did not believe God. Through unbelief, they were evicted from their home. They lost their rest. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, and hopefully we do that at a meeting like this, we're encouraging, exhorting one another to hang on, to be true. While it is today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin do to us? Hardens our hearts little by little. By not doing it today, we procrastinate and think, oh, we've got lots of time, I'll do it tomorrow. And little by little, when you postpone surrendering fully to the Lord, what happens? Our hearts are hardened in disbelief. He says, beware. It happens little by little. Matter of fact, this is that... Uh, frightening book where it talks about it's impossible for those who were once enlightened that have tasted of the heavenly gift if they turn away to renew them to repentance. It's very strong warnings. That's why we should exhort one another today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. How did the nation of Israel lose that one generation that came out of Egypt, they came out. You know, they saw all these miracles, but they lost their confidence. They didn't hold it to the end. And that uh, first generation died in the wilderness. While it is said today, and now Paul is quoting David, who is quoting Moses, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? By the way, in the passage we're reading tonight, uh, I found 12 places you find the word rest. That's a lot of rest in, uh, well, from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11 to 4.11, let's call it one chapter, 12 times rest. Matter of fact, all the times you find rest in Hebrews is the passage we're looking at right now. Rest, 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 rest. How do you feel Friday afternoon? Do you ever kind of long for rest? I bet I long for it more than you do. We've got a busy weekend here tonight studying Romans That'll exhaust you. Romans chapter 5, I'll be teaching tomorrow morning. And then I asked them to do that. So I said, they're not taping. It's just beating down on my head and I have no sunscreen. <laughs> and then there's the message at Granite Bay, Sabbath school at Central, sermon at Granite Bay. Then we have a friend, 99 years old, was driving him, Pastor Ken Phillips, driving himself, had a car accident and died up in Covalo. He was an old man when I met him, 30 years ago, 99 years old. And so then, going to Covalo tomorrow, do a funeral. And when I talk about rest, friends, believe me, it really means something to me. I long for that blessed rest that the Lord is offering. And you know, even beyond the Sabbath, because you know, for pastors, Sabbath doesn't always represent rest. And the Bible says that uh, the priests profane the Sabbath and they're blameless because sometimes you're the busiest. Do you long for that rest? When you're young, you kind of like being pilgrims, don't you? 
Someone says, road trip, you get excited. <laughs> when you get a little older, someone says, road trip, and your heart sinks. <laughs> and someday you'll understand the wisdom of what I'm saying, but you know, you get out on the road with your family for a vacation, and you really look forward to coming home to recover from your vacation. <laughs> but no home in this world is really the rest that Paul is talking about. Now with whom was he angry those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but those who did not obey? Notice this. Who would not enter his rest? Those who did not obey. What does your Bible say? Does it say obey? Verse 19. So we see they could not enter because of unbelief. Now Paul, make up your mind. Is it obedience or is it faith? Or is faith shown through obedience? That's a place I'd circle in my Bible. That's a very powerful statement there. He's talking about not entering the rest of God because of unbelief, and then he says, because they did not obey. Now, I'm going to pause before I get to chapter 4, and I want to show you the story that he's talking about. Turn back in your Bibles, please, to Numbers chapter 13. We're talking about the Creator's calm, that blessed rest that uh, is embodied in this chapter. And I'm going to give you the quick version of this story because there's still a lot to cover. This is one of the most important stories in the Bible because it, it symbolizes the key of how to get to the promised land and the experience of the children of Israel on the borders of the promised land back then are synonymous with God's people Israel on the borders of eternity now. Does everyone understand what I'm saying? There's something there for us now because they got to the borders and did not cross into that rest because of unbelief and disobedience. So the people came to Moses. Uh, I'm in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And they said, look, we're getting ready to go look at this land called the promised land. But, you know, we haven't been there. And none of our fathers have been there because they'd been in Egypt for so long. We have no postcards. We can't get online and find out with Google Earth what it looks like or where we're going to be. We just get little snippets of verbal reports from caravans and these Ishmaelite traders. We'd really like to see for ourselves what we're going to expect because we're going to cross over into someone else's territory and basically say, by the way, this is ours. You have to leave. So they were very apprehensive. Now you have to read Deuteronomy 1 to get this whole story, but Moses says the people came to God and said, send spies. If you read in Numbers 13, it sounds like it was God's idea. In Numbers 13, God is saying, all right, I'll give you permission. Go ahead, send spies. God didn't need spies to know what the land looked like. He already knew. He had already promised it to them because they began to doubt. They wanted spies. And you know, sometimes he didn't fault them for wanting some fresh testimony. We're like that. So they picked 12 men, and I'm not going to read all their names and all the tribes are from. One from each tribe, and two of these 12 especially stand out in history. What's their names? Joshua and Caleb. If you said Caleb and Joshua, you're also correct. Those are the two. And it summarizes in verse 16 of chapter 13. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. By the, name, that was the, by the way, that was the name of Jesus, too. Yeshua. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said, Go up this way into the south, in other words, cross over here, and go up to the mountains, head towards the north, and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor. Now, did Moses know what the land was like? Sure he did. And God had told him it was a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, look, go get the report and bring it back to the people. Whatever it is, you give them the report. Rich or poor, and whether they're a force or not, be of good courage. He tells them before they go, be courageous and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time, and time was the season of first ripe grapes. So they went out and they spied the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, at the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and they came to Hebron. Ahiam, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Enoch, were there. By the way, it tells us that the king of the Anakim had a bed that was 13 feet. Goliath was only nine and a half feet. 
So this was a big nation, tall people. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol. This is up by Carmel. And there they cut down, that's not Carmel, California, that's Carmel, Israel. And they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes and they carried it between the two of them on a pole. Have any of you been to Israel? You know, the, the logo for tourism in Israel, maybe you saw this, is a picture of two men carrying an enormous cluster of grapes between them on a pole. And that was in honor of the first two tourists that went to the land. <laughs> really, that is the logo for the tourism industry in Israel. And if you go over there, you'll see that. And so they cut down this enormous cluster of grapes. Each of the grapes I was in, where was I? I was in Australia. And they brought some grapes to my room. I was doing some meetings there back in November. And I'm not kidding you. Those grapes were, each one was bigger than my thumb. They were enormous. And then I thought to myself, boy, those grapes in the promised land must have been even bigger. Land flowing with milk and honey. And so they uh, carried it. And they also brought some of the pomegranates and the figs. They were told to bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it doesn't say... But who do you think the two were that lugged that great big old bundle of grapes the remainder of the way from the length of, by the way, Carmel is in the mountains of the north. They had to transect the land to get back down to the crossing point again. Who do you think that was? I think it was Joshua and Caleb. I can't prove it, but you can't prove me wrong, so that's why I'm saying it. <laughs> and you'd have to be motivated, and they were. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes that the men cut down. And they returned from spying the land after 40 days. So they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. First thing it records is they showed them the fruit of the land. So that almost makes me think that as they're wandering the land, Caleb and Joshua realize, you know, First impressions make a big difference. These guys that we've been traveling with, and I think Joshua and Caleb became friends. You can read later in the book of Joshua, it seems that way. These characters they've been traveling with were really negative. And as they were going through the promised land, 10 of the spies kept noticing everything that appeared to be an obstacle. You know, some people see the cup half full, some see it half empty. 10 of them saw everything half empty. Joshua and Caleb saw it half full. They always saw the bright side. So when they came to the mountains of Hebron, which is the area where the Anakim lived, the giants, Caleb didn't even see the big walls. He didn't even see the tall people out there. He looked from their hiding place in the bushes and he saw those green, rich meadows with the springs flowing even during the dry part of the year because it's grape harvest. It's dry time. And he said, wow, look at all the water. This is where I want to go. And the other guy said, look at how tall those guys are. They had this grasshopper mentality. The grasshopper, they kept thinking, we're like grasshoppers. That's what they said later. They come back in the report. You, you, you listen, you'll, you'll hear it. So the first ones to get to the children of Israel, Joshua and Caleb said, we better get there first. They get there. And I imagine after all that time carrying all that fruit, they probably have a cloud of fruit flies following them as they get there. And all the congregation sees them coming, some scout sees them coming, and they all gather around, and Caleb and Joshua have got their backpacks bulging with pomegranates and figs that are probably all sticky, and they're throwing them to everybody, and these big grapes, and throwing to everybody, and look, the land we came to, it's flowing with milk and honey. That's the first thing they said, it was very positive. They said, we went to the land you sent us to, and truly it flows with milk and honey, and here is the fruit. I think that's Joshua and Caleb. <clears throat> Next verse, the ten spies caught up. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land to the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of Jordan. And the way they're saying it, and you know, they're, they're pulling on their hair and and moaning and said, oh, the people are big and the walls are big and you should see the walls of Jericho. I don't know how we'll ever bring down those walls. Now, you and I, looking back, know how they brought down the walls and we kind of laugh at a statement like that, but I bet you they said something like that. And now, now looking back, you'd feel kind of foolish. 
They didn't have to worry about the walls, did they? They didn't have to worry about the giants. But they were worried about all the visible obstacles to getting to the promised land. And so this is very important and very pertinent for where we are today. And the people, as they um, are getting the report from the ten spies, they begin to kind of look at each other and begin to moan. And you can hear this ripple effect of negativity sweeping through the congregation. And they're going, oh, I don't know how we're ever going to, why did we even come this far? Here we are at the borders after all we've been through. And we're carrying this temple with us. And how are we going to conquer this nation? We've been slaves and they're warlike people and they got walls and we don't. They began to think about all of the problems that compounded with a negative report that they got. Caleb and Joshua saw what was happening and they jumped up on some prominent spot and they shouted to the people. Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people. Why did he have to quiet the people? Because they're all beginning to wail already. He quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once. I like him. He not only said, I think we can do it, let's strategize. He had just come back from 40 days of wandering, half that time carrying a big old lug of figs. And what does he say when he gets back? I mean, after I come back from a trip like that, I say, give me a couple weeks. He says, let's go right now. He wanted to stake a claim. I like his enthusiasm. He said, let us go up at once and take possession. I like this. I've underlined this in my Bible. For we are well able, not only are we able, he said, we are well able to overcome it. Now, this is very important. Caleb gives a report that says, we can be overcomers. We are well able. He doesn't ever contest any of the details about the size of the giants or the obstacles that they're going to encounter, the walls or their fortification. He doesn't argue with that. Those things may have been real. In spite of that, he says, we're well able. Now, are there obstacles to our salvation? Sure there are. You face them every day. Are they real? But does the devil get you to think you can't make it? He wants you to. And what does God want you to hear? We are well able. Go up tomorrow. Or does he say go up at once? Doesn't that mean today? Isn't that what we read in Hebrews? Today? He said, we are well able. Let us go. But the men who went with him, 10 out of the 12 said, we are not able. Okay, here we got. They said, we are not able. I underline that too. You've got two different words. Devil said, don't eat it or you'll die. Obey me and you'll live. Devil said, no, don't listen to God. Eat it. He's holding stuff back. They've got to choose who they're going to believe. Now the people are hearing two reports that conflict. One report is saying, yes, you can. With God, all things are possible. We are well able. Look how far he's brought us so far. And the other group is saying, you haven't seen what we've seen. They're just all problems on every side. And those people are entrenched and we're not able. They both saw the same promised land and they give opposite reports. Have you heard people read from the same Bible? And some will say, don't take yourself too seriously. You're not really able to overcome sin or resist temptation. And then another group says, yes, you can. Through Christ, all things are possible. He is able to keep you from falling. He is able. And they're looking at the same Bible. And you've got to make a decision. Which one do you believe? Which report are you going to believe? Well, you have to ask this question. Had the Lord successfully brought them quite a ways? Can God finish what he starts? Look at all the miracles God did to bring them as far as they were. Why would they doubt at this point? Has the Lord worked miracles for you before? Has he given you any victories that you can look back on and praise him for? Then can he do more? Now, my theology is pretty simple. The way I think is, is God stronger or the devil? And when I hear preachers stand up and say, don't try to stop sinning or you become a legalist, I think to myself, what's the alternative to just bask in sin, to surrender to it? I mean, we've got two choices. You can either resist the devil or you can capitulate. And so my theology is 
Do we believe that the devil can tempt us to sin? Well, I believe that. Sure he can. Right? You don't want to say, I mean, of course he did. You, he can tempt you to sin. Do you believe Jesus can keep you from sin? But those who are saying that they believe the devil can tempt them to sin, but they don't think Jesus can keep them from sin from because after all, you've got this fallen nature, so you're just not capable. We are not able. They're bringing back a bad report. By the way, if you don't believe that you're able, you won't. Because righteousness by faith starts with faith. Doesn't it? You can't have righteousness by faith without faith. So if you want that righteousness, first you need the faith that he's able. And it's this simple. This experience of the Israelites really is an allegory of how salvation works. Now, we're not done. It says, they said we're not able. For the people are stronger than we are. Is the devil stronger than we are? He is, if it's you against the devil. But you and Jesus are always a majority. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. The land through which we had gone as spies is a land that devours the inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature, devours the inhabitants. Or they just said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, look at these two opposite reports. And they're all church members. They're all the church of God in the wilderness. They're all Israelites. Could we have that kind of conflict in our church? Two completely different reports. You know, I'd like to make a prediction. I'm not a prophet, I'll tell you right now. I've made enough mistakes, you ought to know that. But I'll make a prediction based on the word of God that history is going to repeat itself and you're going to have a split of reports on the borders of the promised land again. You're going to have one group saying, let's go, we can make it. And you know, they may not be the majority. The smaller group, were they the majority or the minority? Uh, no, that... <laughs> This is a trick question. The, um, the positive group, were they the majority or the minority? They're the small group. Maybe that's why Jesus said, straight is the gate that leads to life and few there be that find it. Why? Few believe. Few believe that he is able. They brought back an evil report. The men we saw, they said, are all of great stature. And this is where it talks about the grasshoppers. And we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak there, who came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. That was their problem. They were thinking like grasshoppers. Be it unto you according to your faith. You think like a grasshopper, you'll be a grasshopper. And so we were in their sight. Then I'm going to read on. Then chapter 14 of Numbers. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. You know, it doesn't say it was a few of them. It says the whole congregation said. Well, there's at least two of them that didn't say that. Caleb and Joshua, probably Moses and Aaron didn't say it either. The rest of them are praying a prayer. Be careful what you pray for. Make sure you punctuate your prayers with according to your will, God, because sometimes God will answer bad prayers. You hear me? Sometimes you pray, 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 and you get something, you think, oh, it must have been the will of God. Well, maybe not. Maybe God gave it to you because you wanted it so bad so you could learn something. The people of Israel said, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. Was it God's will to have a king? No. Did he give him a king? Yeah. Was he a problem? Saul? Sure was. Sometime God will answer your prayer and you're praying a bad prayer. You better say, Lord, if it be your will. They said, let us die in this wilderness. Why did the Lord bring us up? Let's pick another leader. <laughs> That's another thing. They, they say, we want a leader that doesn't believe. Isn't that what they were saying? I mean, they, they said, Moses said, look, I'm come to lead you to the promise. And they said, no, we want another leader to take us back to Egypt that says we can't make it. I'm very thankful for the new leader we have of the general conference. Amen. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly. They knew what was coming of the congregation. They fell on their faces to pray and they fell on their faces to duck. You know what happened? God made an oath. God doesn't swear. By the way, 
Who does God swear by? By his own name. He, he said that uh, as I live, verse 28. Well, I'll go to verse 27, Numbers 14. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings which the children of Israel murmur against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord. I mean, usually people would say, as the Lord lives. He's saying, as I live. This is an oath. And this is coming up in Hebrews. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The carcasses of you who have murmured against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years, 20 years old and upward, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land that I swore that you would dwell in. You know what that means? Whenever I read this, I start to do the math. There might have been, oh, two and a half million Israelites that crossed over into the promised land. How many of them were there? Over 60. Come on. I dropped out of high school. I know the answer to this. Two. If everybody over 20 dies, except two of them, and they wander 40 years, there's nobody over 20 that gets to wander those 40 years. So how many are there over 60? What a strange tribe they must have been. There probably was no senior center. By the way, you've read that verse that says there was not one feeble person among their tribes. You know one reason. He'd called out everybody over 60. Now the health program usually doesn't tell you that, but you've got to keep that in mind. Am I right? Think about that. All right, back to Hebrews. Now I'm going to go to chapter 4, verse 1. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Now do you know what he's talking about? The children of Israel did not enter the promised land. All of those who said we are not able, did they make it? So what's one of the first steps if you want to make it? You got to believe that you're able. And, but what if you lose a battle along the way? Does that mean you say, I guess maybe we're not able? No, you, you keep trusting the Lord and still keep believing you're able. Did you catch that? Did the children of Israel have battles in the wilderness before they got to this experience? They did. They fought with the Amalekites. And when Moses' hands went down, they started losing. Why didn't they just give up? Because Moses' hands went back up and their faith went back up. And there was a period of time until Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses. Moses' hands went down. People started dying. They started losing. His hands went up. They started winning. Boy, talk about pressure. Your arms get sore and you say, oh, let me rest. Oh, and they start dying. I got to get up. Oh, man. Oh, you know. And finally said, you guys give me a hand, literally, right? <laughs> and to hold his hands up. So they had ups and downs through the wilderness. They had several plagues that came through before they ever got to this experience. They had won battles, they'd lost battles, but they weren't to lose faith that he was able to bring them into the promised land. Now, I venture to say, you probably lost some battles and you've won some battles, but don't stop believing that he is able to finish what he started and bring you all the way into the promised land. Amen? Amen? Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, I'll explain this in just a minute. What is that promise that remains? Keep in mind, Paul is preaching here in the New Testament. Children of Israel had been in the promised land. What is the promise that he's still talking about? Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. Are we supposed to fear anything? I just said, let us fear. That's a good sermon title. We ought to sing a song about it. That'll be the title. Let us fear. Doesn't sound very positive, does it? But you know, it's in the Bible. Let us fear what? That we follow their example of unbelief. You should be afraid of that. But it's not all wrong to fear. Was Job a man that feared God and hated evil? Who was a John Wesley that said, give me 300 people that fear nothing but God and I'll conquer the world. He that fears God fears nothing else. He that does not fear God fears everything else. That's a quote, but I forget who said it. For indeed the gospel was preached to them. He's talking about those in the Old Testament. The good news about the rest was preached to them as well as to us. 
But the word that they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, notice, faith, believe, do enter that rest. Notice that connection between faith and believing and rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath they would not enter my rest. Now you know what he's talking about here. By the way, Paul is quoting King David, Psalms 95 verse 11, who is quoting Moses back in the wilderness. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the Sabbath day from all of his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So, let me park here for a second, talk about the Sabbath in context with this rest. You know one reason the Seventh-day Adventist church is so important in the last days? Everything I just said to you about the children of Israel making it to the promised land is spoken of in the context of the rest. Every week when we celebrate the Sabbath, we are thinking about that ultimate rest of heaven. It's not only a memorial of creation. Keep in mind, Adam's first Sabbath, he was resting because he was saved his first Sabbath, right? He was home. He was exactly where he was supposed to be that first Sabbath. Every Sabbath that we keep now is a memorial of when we're going to get back home and the real rest that we find in the promised land and the rest we find in Jesus. You notice God doesn't say your rest. He says my rest. You will not enter into my rest. He has a rest for us. The message of the Sabbath is especially important in these last days because we're talking about that rest they find in Jesus. I'll say more about that in just a moment. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. Now Paul's writing to Hebrews. Do you think they knew where that was? And God rested on the seventh day. Matter of fact, this might be an example of a little bit of irony in his writing. They all knew where that was. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, and again he designates a certain day in David, David means in Psalms, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. All right, now I've, I've read all this because I planned on backing up and seeing if I could explain it. The children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were looking forward to resting in the promised land. Well, they got detoured because of unbelief. Whole generation, their corpses died because they rebelled. They did not obey, they did not believe, and they died in the wilderness, right? But the Lord said, even after Joshua brought that second generation into the promised land, the Lord said through David in Psalms, who lived first, Joshua or David? Joshua. Long after Joshua's been gone, King David, Joshua died 14, oh, right, it was actually like 1380 or something like that, B.C. David's born about 1000 B.C. Joshua's been dead a long time. David comes along. And David then says in Psalms, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And he goes on in Psalm 95, they have not known my ways, and I sworn my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So he says, today, and he talks about entering rest, He's not talking about the rest of the promised land because they got that after Joshua. Why would David, who's in the promised land, say, you're not going to enter my rest because of unbelief? What he's saying is there's another rest. Paul is writing to the Israelites saying the rest is not just about having your own piece of land here in this world. The rest is not even about just having the Sabbath because they had that. It's a rest in somebody. Paul is appealing to the Jews who had accepted Jesus that there was a bigger rest than being in the promised land. Because right now they're fighting with the Romans about will we have the land to ourselves again and God gave us this land. Same battle they're having today. And it wasn't about the dirt under their feet. It was another rest he's talking about. And see so he's saying, David talks about a rest that was not entered because of unbelief and it's not the land you got to think about something bigger than just being in your own land. He's talking about a permanent dwelling place. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he, David, would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And that word there, rest, is the same as the word Sabbath. 
Sabbatismos. There is still the keeping of a Sabbath for the people of God. And this is, you know, I think powerful evidence for us New Testament Christians. The Sabbath is still in effect. By the way, this would have been a really good place for Paul to say in Hebrews, you don't need to keep the Jewish Sabbath anymore because we're looking for just the rest of Jesus. He never even broaches that concept because that was a thousand miles from anybody's thinking back then. They all knew that the Seventh-day Sabbath was there. Just for a moment, let me talk about the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Now that we're New Testament Christians, are we under the spirit of the law or the letter of the law? Both. Let me explain. That is a big diversionary myth that a lot of uh, pastors and believers from other churches sometimes talk to Seventh-day Adventists and they say, you Seventh-day Adventists, you guys are all tied up with the letter of the law. And by the way, some are. They don't have the spirit, they just have the letter. That's a very sad condition to be in. Ellen White says the sermons are as dry as the hills of Gilboa. If we were just preaching about the letter of the law, we don't talk about the spirit. But just as ridiculous is the idea that you've got the spirit and you don't have the letter. Give, let me give you some examples. Jesus said, for example, you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, is that part of the law that God wrote with his finger? Is that the letter of the law? Yeah, of course, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he says, the spirit of the law is, if you look on a woman to lust in your heart, and that works both ways, ladies, you can commit adultery in your heart. It's not just the letter, the action, it's an attitude that leads to disobeying the letter of the law. It's a spiritual attitude that leads to disobedience. So, now that I understand that, and I want to be led by the Spirit, and I'm Spirit-led regarding the Seventh Commandment, is it possible for me to keep the Spirit of that law and break the letter? If I were to say, you know, I'm spiritually in my heart, I'd never think of such a thing. I might do it literally, physically, but spiritually, no. Isn't that absurd? The letter of the law says, thou shalt not kill. The spirit of the law, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of murder. Some of you are guilty of murder spiritually. So if I were to say to you, you know, I'm a spiritual Christian, I'm going to keep the spirit of the law, but I'm going to break the letter. I would never think angry thoughts against you. I might kill you, but I won't think, I'll think loving thoughts while I do it, because I am a loving spiritual Christian. While I kill you, I'll think loving thoughts. Is that possible? Can you break the letter of the law while you keep the spirit? So don't ever fall for it when someone says, oh, you Adventists, you're keeping the letter of the law that says, remember the seventh day to keep it holy. I keep the spirit of the law. I have my rest in Jesus. Well, prove it. How can you say you keep the spirit of the law while you're breaking the letter? Because if you love Jesus and you're resting in Christ and you're not at the very minimum keeping his holy day, and it goes on to say it wasn't man's idea, it says, for God, God rested, and man follows his example. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Now, how can you be diligent to rest? Happens every Friday. Do you diligently work so you can enter rest when the sun goes down? Should we diligently work to enter the rest of the promised land by faith? There's no conflict in having faith and diligently working to enter that rest through belief. It says, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Now what happened? He says there's an example of disobedience. What happened to the children of Israel that disobeyed? They didn't make it to the promised land. And he's telling us that it's through unbelief they disobey. I was talking to somebody earlier this week about grace. And um, grace was the emphasis at the general conference session. And I heard some wonderful things. I also heard some things that I thought were misapplications. A lot of people use grace as a substitute for presumption. The idea being that when you have grace, you don't need to obey. And the idea of God's grace is he gives us grace to obey. And you don't hear that very often. How, how rarely do you hear someone say, 
praise the Lord, he's been gracious unto me and he's given me power to do his will. Thank the Lord for his grace to do his will. That's the purpose of the grace of God. He gives us grace. You can't do anything without God. It's his grace that gives you his power to do his will. But it's all like grace is actually a big cover-up. Yes, grace is, mercy is part of that grace, but he also gives you grace on a daily basis to be doers of the word. Now, I want to go back. Now that we've read the entire passage, and um, in the time that remains, I want to talk about what the essence of this is all about. You ever get homesick? You ever get homesick for heaven? When you think of a place of peace and tranquility, oh, thank you very much. I'll save that for later. When you think of a place of peace or tranquility, what pops up into your mind? Do you have a place on this planet? The Bible says that Abraham, he, he looked for a city who had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The early patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were pilgrims. They were strangers. They were wandering. It says, but now they desire a better country. Do you want this country or do you look for a better country? That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Do you believe he has a place for you? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Do you long for that place? Do you think about that place? I mean, Caleb and Joshua, oh, they wanted so much to be in that place. Did they have to wait a little bit? Did they finally get there? You know, I love that story. And you find this in the book Joshua chapter 14. I'll just tell it to you as well as I can. But um, after they fought a number of battles, Caleb, now he's 85 years old, comes to Joshua, who's also 80-something years old. And he says, you remember back 40 years ago, it's actually more than 40 now, how the Lord said to you and I, because we believed that we'd get into the promised land, where here we are. He said, and you know, we fought some battles. And he said, by the grace of God, my strength is now as strong today as it was then, both for war, for going out and for coming in. Boy, I'm only 53, and I wish I could say I was as strong as I was 10 years ago. I can't say that. People keep coming up to me. I kind of rue the day. I did a back handspring during the health program because everywhere I go, they say, can you do another one? I said, no. I could do one more. It'll be my last one. <laughs> That'll be a rough landing. <laughs> but here he's 85 years old. He says, I'm as strong now as I was then. Of course, they had a pretty good diet. They're eating this heavenly food for war. And then he says something that's remarkable. He says, you remember everybody was so scared of the giants? And remember when you and I were looking out of those bushes and we said, look at those meadows and look at all those springs. And Caleb thought within my, himself, that's where I can picture my house, my cabin right there. And for 40 years as they went through the wilderness, Caleb had this picture in his mind of that home where he wanted to be. And Joshua had a place picked out in Ephraim where he wanted to be. And Caleb said, Give me the mountains. And he's talking about the mountains of Hebron. Give me that mountain where the giants are. He said, I'm not afraid. He said, if God's with me, we'll overcome them. Did Caleb believe in overcoming? Did he overcome? You know, Caleb conquered the children of Anak that lived in the mountains. He conquered the giants because of his faith. He was from the tribe of Judah. The reason that the tribe of Judah lives where they live today is because of the faith of that old man, Caleb. And the tribe of Judah ended up taking that territory. And he had that picture of that home all that time. And he finally was able to settle down in that home and live out his days there by those springs and those beautiful trees and those meadows because he believed. What is a home? It's the native habitat of some animal, the physical structure within which one lives, a house or an apartment, a dwelling place together where a family or a social unit occupies. It's an environment offering security and happiness. A valued place regarded as a refuge or a place of origin. The place of one's country where one is born or has lived for a long period. Someone said a home is a place where you can find yourself around, find your way around in the dark. A home is a place where the great are small and the smaller great. A home 
It's not where you live, but it's where they understand you. Where is your home? Are you thinking about a home in heaven? You know, everybody sort of is longing for something better in this world, and we're all sort of shuffling around all the time. Do you know more people move in this generation, according to National Geographic, we are living in the generation where more people move than any other time in history. And in North America, some people, their average time for adults is three years in one place, changing jobs. It's just, it's phenomenal when you think about it. Everybody's on the move. Do you picture a home in heaven? You know, I used to wonder why my dad would say he was born in Oklahoma. I don't know if you ever heard the story of like Grapes of Wrath. A bunch of the people in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl came to California. My dad was part of that migration. He was a farm picker when he came out, very poor. And he ended up doing well, successful business, moved from California to Miami, lived out the rest of his days there, died there. And it kind of surprised the whole family. One day he sent us a photograph, and it was a tombstone. It was kind of, kind of eerie. It was a photograph of a tombstone, and it said bachelor on it. I didn't know if it was mine at first. It just said bachelor on it. And then I let, my dad was always very brief in his notes. And it just had this picture of a grave, and it signed it. And I'm going, what is this all about? Is it a threat? I said, no, no. This is, he says, I've got my grave place picked out. I just want to show you. I had him take a picture. The stone's all picked in. It turned out it was actually his parents that he picked. But after he died, he wanted to get buried back in Oklahoma. No one else in the family was there but his mom and dad. And somehow, that's where he wanted to be. It's like he was longing to find a place at home. He had a mansion in Miami Beach. And he wanted to get buried in the Shawnee Cemetery. And we went to the Shawnee Cemetery and buried my dad. You know, I heard an amazing story. We did an amazing fact about this on the uh, radio regarding David Livingston. When he died in 1873, he'd given some instructions to two of his very loyal friends, a couple of the only converts Livingston had. He was actually a greater geographer and an explorer than a missionary, but he opened the way for all the other missionaries through his exploration. Two of his friends, Tuma and Susi, according to his instructions, they buried his heart in Africa beneath a tree. Then they laid his body out in the sun, filled it with salt, let it mummify. They wrapped it up with cloth and the bark of a tree, sewed his body up in sailcloth after it was thoroughly mummified, took all of his important papers, and he had said casually while he was sick, he had said, if you can find a way to get my body back to the British Council, I know my family would be grateful. And because that was sort of his dying wish, these two friends then stuck a pole through the sailcloth and they carried his body 1,000 miles by hand over their shoulders. Took them 11 months to get it to Zanzibar, to the British Council there. And it took some doing to convince the British Council. They said, this is David Livingston. Everyone in Britain knew who David Livingston was. You remember those famous lines, Dr. Livingston, I presume? because they thought he had died in the wilderness, and so someone in New York hired Henry Stanley, a Civil War veteran, to, who became a reporter to go to Africa, and he spent months looking. He started out as an agnostic, had 300 books when he began his journey. End of his journey, he had one book left. It was the Bible. And then after meeting Livingston, he ultimately becomes a Christian. Amen. And everyone in Britain, I mean, the word came back that they had found Livingston, he was still alive, and it, I mean, he was a national hero. And so when these two poor Africans show up out of the jungle with this canvas cloth, this shriveled up mummy, and this is uh, David Livingston, and he asked us if we could bring it back. They said, no. They opened it up, and finally they found a scar on his arm that had been left by a lion attack. He survived a lion attack. Talk about faith. And they said, it must really be him. They shipped the body back to England. It takes a year for his body to get back. They actually brought one of his friends, Susie, there, and uh, I've been to his grave there in, in uh, Westminster Abbey. One of the amazing things, not only was uh, Henry Stanley there, Robert Moffat, his father-in-law, was there, who had called him to the mission field 40 years earlier when he was just a boy. He lived a long time, Moffat did. He actually married Moffat's daughter. Talk about, boy, what kind of friend would you have to be? But they thought, you know, we want to take him home. It was so important to them 
to get their friend home. And then you read in the Bible, when Joseph died, he said, don't bury me in Egypt. He says, because God's going to visit you and he's going to lead you as surely as his word is true. He's going to lead you to the promised land. Take my bones with you. And they mummified him. He took an oath from them. God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. And they brought him to the, uh, to the land of Israel. So are you anxious to get home? You know, every now and then I hear these stories. And I remember one, and the details, particulars, are a little sketchy. But roughly what I remember, this family in Jacksonville, Florida was moving. This is like in the last 10 years. And um, in the flurry of the move, the moving truck, the yards opened, the dog was pretty scruffy, let's call him, I forget his name, some mongrel, but it was their dog, they loved their dog. He got out and he got spooked or something, he ran off right about the time they loaded the truck and they had to go and they looked high and low through the neighborhood, they couldn't find him, finally they told the neighbors, here's where we're moving, if you find Scruffy, call us, we'll find a way to ship him home, but they never heard word and they took off in their planes and their trucks and they moved to Abilene, Texas. Three months later, this very tired, scruffy-looking dog named Scruffy showed up at their house in Abilene, Texas, a thousand miles away. How in the world do they do that? You've heard stories like this, haven't you? I heard once about a cat that went about 600 miles. A cat? <laughs> and cats really aren't owned by anyone. They kind of just decide who they want to live with. And the thing is that Scruffy didn't want to go home to the home where he had been. He wanted to go home with somebody. He went all that distance not to get back to the two-by-fours and plaster that had been his home. He went all that distance to get back to the people that had been his home. And Jesus says in that great invitation, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So in Hebrews 4 when God says enter into his rest, today you could have his rest. Whose rest is Paul talking about? The rest that comes from following Christ and surrendering to him. Jesus says take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You come to him just like you are and then you learn. You come and you still learn after you come. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest You'll find rest. You notice that? He says, I'll give you rest and you'll find rest. That means it's a gift and it's something you search for. You'll find rest, not for your body so much right now, but for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel like going home? Are you looking forward to a, a better country? Do you believe that he is able to take you all the way, that you can make it? Do you really believe you can make it? You know, you've got to start by choosing to believe. You can choose today to believe that you can be and do everything God has planned for your life. And you know, I thought it'd be appropriate to uh, close with a song. In your hymnals, if you have hymnals around you there somewhere, I believe it's 296. It's coming home. Coming home. And we're going to sing this song. And you know, as we sing... Matter of fact, why don't we stand, if you could? I'd like to ask that we sing the first verse, and then I'd like to make an appeal, and we'll have special prayer. again on the borders of the promised land and just as back in the Old Testament 
there are two conflicting reports that you're going to hear. Some people are saying, don't take this business of sin and salvation too seriously. Just sort of accept in your mind that uh, you can be saved and then just uh, give in to the current of the world around you. And there's another voice that's saying, no, we can conquer the giants. We can, by faith, bring down the walls. We can actually take possession of the promised land that if God is with us, all things are possible. We can make it to that rest that he's promised. Maybe you've been hearing both voices and you haven't fully surrendered. You know, today is the time that he tells us to make that decision. Have you totally surrendered to the Lord, your life to him? He's got a big plan for you. He can't really activate that plan unless you've totally surrendered to him. And you know, we have appeals like this and we do it publicly because you shouldn't be ashamed. And Jesus died for you publicly. It's a good starting point to express your love for him publicly. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and you realize, you know, I haven't totally consecrated myself, but today I want to do that. Then would you like to come forward for prayer? We're going to sing verse 2 and then verse 5. just a moment I'm going to have prayer with you and I'd like to believe that uh, only the Holy Spirit knows what is happening in every mind and heart but surrendering fully to Jesus right now means that you believe that he can give you victory don't worry how you're going to do that tomorrow going through the wilderness and following the Lord is something you do day by day he will give you the strength for every trial he's not going to knock down the walls of Jericho till you get to Jericho is he and so just say, I believe he can finish what he began in my life, and I'm going to follow him. And by his grace, one day at a time, one minute at a time, I'm going to have a life of victory. you believe he's able to keep you from falling? You know, after we pray, uh, as a matter of fact, maybe now I'd like to have Cindy come up. I don't know if you can come around this way. It might be quicker. We've got some slips of paper. After we pray, if some of you would like to fill this out, please, if you'd like to request Bible studies, maybe some of you have never been baptized. Why wouldn't you want to make that decision now to go all the way with the Lord? You may have a special need for prayer. We've got a number of groups around the campus that are praying. You may want to meet with a pastor or a counselor, and that's also available. And so we've got some cards here. We'd just like to make that available to you to fill out. And uh, following our prayer, if any of you would like those cards, they'll be gathering over in my left, your right, after we pray. Could we bow our heads where we are, please? Dear Father, we are very thankful and we praise you for the evidence of your spirit here tonight. Lord, we do yearn for that rest that comes from Jesus. Lord, we, we yearn for that, that land where Eden will once again be restored in this world and where we can live with you and walk with you and see you face to face. We'll find rest in those mansions, but even more, Lord, right now we can find rest in you, a rest that will continue in that heavenly promised land. 
We want to come to you right now. Today, you've told us we can begin that rest. Today, we can find that rest. We can enter that rest. By faith, Lord, we can believe that our sins are forgiven. And then you're not only willing to sanctify us, you can then give us victory in our lives. You not only justify us, but you'll sanctify us. Bless each person that we might realize that experience. I pray also for your blessing on us during the sacred hours of the Sabbath. On the whole WIC meeting that's going on right now, pour out your spirit on your church. Lord, I pray that you will raise up an army of young people that will be filled with faith and courage in this generation. We're right on the borders of the promised land. Bless every presentation that will be made. And I pray that we'll just sense that your angels are here and your spirit right in our hearts now. Thank you again for your goodness and for these prayers that are being prayed, these decisions that have been made. And we're asking this in Christ's name. Amen.